Live from the Mecca of Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah. This is Heart of the Matter, where Mormonism meets Biblical Christianity face-to-face. I'm your host, Sean McCraney. May you, the, the, we praise the true and living God for uh, being allowing us to be in this his ministry tonight. We pray that he's with you, whether you're watching live streaming on the internet, through YouTube, by coming to our archives, or on the NRB network, uh, channel 378, Direct TV. We welcome you. Listen, take a look. of the matter television network giving god a chance to make sense listen the opportunity before us has so much potential and i'm asking uh you to uh, break out and spread the news with everyone you know we are throwing everything we've got into making it work uh we'll even sell your children if necessary to make this thing happen just kidding seriously we're not going to be able to make it without your hands-on You can't be lazy, you guys. Your hands-on participation as guided by God, of course. Why? Uh, We're not making the network's focus uh, about making a buck. We are going to make it about good, original, entertaining, biblically sound programming and providing a new approach to Christian television. Now, Christian television's popularity started back like the 1950s, and it has slowly snowballed into this uh, uh, ugly chimera, a uh, three-headed monster of uh, hor- hor- horridness. And, uh, and so it's our opinion it's time for cheesy Christian television and evangelicalism to die. Or I shouldn't say evangelicalism, I should tell evangelism uh, they all need to have better haircuts, for one thing. That's, that's the first thing. Uh, gone are the days of glittery, white-suited men slapping people on foreheads, singing the praises of health and wealth, and begging people to send in their seed money. Uh, gone are the days of idiotic, non-contextual teachings of the Word of God. We are starting small, a local station that reaches a quarter of a million people along the Wasatch Front here in Utah. But our goal in doing that, you got to start this way, is to get on cable. Once we have the station on cable, we can get picked up by other cable networks around the U.S. But we need your help to crush the beast as it thrives today in Christian television. How? Uh, First, don't think that other people will do the work. And the work is sharing the news about what's happening. We need you to tell everybody in your social sphere, through your social media outlets, your uh, disgrace book and your uh, Insta, Insta spam and all those things that you do, your twittering and your tweaking and, and, and all that stuff, uh, twerking, um, that uh, we need you to send them to this address. This is why we're going to do great on, on our own television show. It's because, it's because of things like this. Look, it's the YouTube address. Brandy, director, there it is. Send your friends to that. They can watch an eight minute segment where we explain what's going to happen. Uh, we need you to uh, suggest to us through email, send us an email, what programs you like. Hey, we really like this guy. We really like that guy. 
consider, because all we got to do is send them an email and get a relationship going and get their programming here. We're going to put it in through a server and it will upload automatically with new spots and new, all this stuff involved. And we're not going to charge them an arm and a leg, maybe $25 for a half hour show or $50 for an hour show, something like that. Right now, I mean, when we were on the local channel here, we were $450 a week. And it's just unconscionable. We, you don't have to do that in the model that we figured out. So we also need you to pray. And if you're in a position, you have to be in a position and led of the Lord, uh, consider helping us to meet the added expense uh, that's going to cost the ministry. And listen, it's negligible when you consider uh, what's out there. We're going to need about 75 grand that we don't normally have. I'm not, this is not a pitch for send in your, you know, at all. I'm just telling you what it is. 22,000 of it is an annual lease. That's all it's costing us to get out there and start this. And then another 36 to pay for a station tech manager or managers and 18 grand to go toward internet advertising to keep that alive. It's, a, it's a, really a small thing if it's spread out. And this is not for people who are on a fixed income. This is not for people who are retired and don't have an income. This is not for people who are struggling to make ends meet. But if you have means and you're led of the Lord and you want to help us get this going, I'm not ashamed to ask for it because it, we're going to put it to good use. Uh, yeah, it's going to be a little lowbrow at first, but we are going to make the quality of the programming right. So really, it's 75K for um, about 8,700 hours of annual programming going out to 250,000 households with the potential of then taking that uh, station and going into other markets like Vegas and other places where there's a lot of LDS and then uh, going on cable television. Some quick clarifications. This is not a Sean McCraney uh, television network. Uh, Heart of the Matter and Aletheia Ministries programming will represent at the onset about 10% of the available monthly hours. And then we hope to bring it down to about 5% and bring in all kinds of programming. And, and as I've said before, it doesn't have to be uh, totally consistent with some of the things that we've taught. If people want to teach other things, that's going to happen when it comes to the body. So consider joining us. Uh, we might be small, but we're relentless for him and to present transparent television communications in his name. And with that, how about a moment from the word? Brandy. And I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse. Quality air here in the Salt Lake Valley this past week. At our campus gathering on Sunday morning, our milk gathering, we're working our way through the end of John, Gospel of John chapter 5. And while I was preparing this week, I realized something important relative to the Mormon Christian debate uh, that's evident in this chapter. Jesus was by a pool of water, and he noticed a guy who's been lame 38 years, and there was this belief that the water had an angel come down and touch it, or some other medicinal value to it, but the lame man couldn't get down into it, and so Jesus asked him, do you want to be healed? And he says, no one's there to help me, and, and, and in the end, Jesus heals him, and when he does, he says, take up your bed and walk. Well, it was the Sabbath day, and so the guy picks up his bed, and according to the Old Testament, bearing a burden on the Sabbath day was breaking the Sabbath. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, so he was able to do that. Plus, it was the man's property, so he, he could bear that burden. But in any case, the Jews came and said, you're causing this guy to break the Sabbath day, and this was in the temple. Well, Jesus gives it the old college try to get these Jewish leaders to recognize him as the promised Messiah. The reason I'm bringing this up is to get you to notice what Jesus himself appeals to to get them to see his true identity or to understand the truth. Ready? He gives five, he gives five ways that they can know that he is who he is. First, in John 5, 32, he says, There is another that bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. So this is the first thing he says. Who was that witness he's speaking of? John the Baptist. All right. Now, unlike Joseph Smith's witnesses for his golden plates, which were all from three families and they were all buddies in the town, this witness that Jesus appeals to was John the Baptist. And though they were related, they did not know each other. So we have uh, Jesus saying that witness, uh, you can appeal to him. You went to him. You sought after him. You followed him. 
Well, he bears witness of me. He was a real person and, uh, and, uh, and, and was respected. And Jesus said, he didn't know me beforehand. He baptized me, the Holy Spirit fell. He witnessed of me. That's the first witness he says. The next evidence Jesus appeals to to prove his true messiahship were the miracles he performed. He says in verse 36, again, but I have greater witnesses than that of John. For the works which the Father has given me to finish, the same works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. What works was he talking about? The miracles. These Jewish leaders knew this lame man had, had not walked for 38 years, and they knew that Jesus had gotten him to stand up and walk, and he was now unlame, if that's a correct way. But uh, they wanted to focus on the fact that Jesus had him supposedly break the Sabbath day. I would strongly suggest the reason Jesus did miracles were because it was prophesied in the Old Testament that Messiah would do miracles, but also so that people would see those miracles and it would be proof of who he was. So again, these are tangible proofs based on real experiences that were done out in the open for everybody to see. The next evidence Jesus offers is described in the next verse where he says in verse 37, and the Father himself, is dis, uh, uh, the Father himself which has sent me has borne witness of me. So this is the third witness he appeals to. He says the Father himself has borne witness of him. How did the Father bear witness of him? I can think of a few things. We've listed them for you. You ready? In the prophecies of the Old Testament, the Father witnessed of, of Christ. In the signs and wonders surrounding his birth, remember the stars in the sky and all the stuff that was going on, all witness, the Father witnessing of, of the Son. Through people testifying him, there was a woman in the temple who glorified God that she lived to see the day that the Messiah would come. At his baptism, the Holy Spirit fell like a dove and a voice was heard from on high saying, this is my beloved in whom I am well pleased. That's the Father witnessing of him. And in the miracles that Jesus had uh, wrought up at this point in time, which we just mentioned. Notice all of these uh, witnesses are based in real experiences that real people could see in a real history uh, in real places, all right? The next evidence Jesus tells these Jews to consider is the word of God itself. He tells them in verse 39, search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, but they are which testify of me. So he says, go back, you guys are masters of reading the, the Old Testament. When he says scriptures, he means Old Testament here. Go back and read them. He says, you think they give you eternal life, they testify of me. So again, a tangible written evidence, written by prophets that they accepted, go and read those, they testify of me. And then finally, he appeals to something more specific in scripture, Moses. He says, verse 46, for had you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. So that's the fifth witness, he says. Go back to Moses and consider what he said. As a means to get these men to know the truth, Jesus appealed to five witnesses that were all based in a historical, uh, literal, real uh, relation to him and the men he was talking to. Notice, relative to the Mormon Christian debate, that Jesus never tells them, go and pray to the Father to know that I'm the Messiah. He never says, go and you'll get warm feelings in your heart to know the truth that I'm the Messiah. He never goes, the Bible never says, pray about the Bible to know if it's true. The reason is, is because that's a carnival trick. You tell somebody, listen, do you wanna know that this little booklet that I wrote is true? Go and ask God. And if you feel something, well, then you'll know that it is. It's a carnival trick. You could feel something because of an upset stomach because you just fell in love because you're depressed, because you're excited. Those are feelings. We can never base knowledge, epistemological knowledge, on our feelings. And that's why Jesus didn't tell those Jews, do you want to know that I'm the Messiah? Go, pray, ask the Father. He'll tell you I'm the Messiah. He appealed to real, real men, real experiences, real scripture, written in real history, and does not ever use the LDS method of attempting to discern truth through feelings. All right, some food for thought. With that, let's have a word of prayer. <clears throat> Father God, we, uh, we pray you'll be with us tonight in spirit and in truth. Uh, the things I say which are wrong and evil, uh, which come out of my mouth frequently, 
that you'll forgive and people will forget, but your truth will be made manifest to our hearts by and through your spirit. And if challenged, we look to your word to clarify all things. We pray for this in Jesus' name, amen. I've been really excited to continue to explore our topic of ultimate reconciliation. We've been on that for the past couple weeks uh, because we're getting into biblical specifics in scripture related to that. But the LDS Church last week posted something on their website that bears an immediate response. The article or announcement was titled by the LDS Church leadership, Race and Priesthood. In many ways, the article is monumental. It's a monumental article for a couple reasons. Now, before we cover the content, I think that we have to admit that when a religion or a government or, a, or, or anybody makes progress in their backward thinking, that it's a good thing, okay? So in other words, if the Westboro Baptist Church decided to stop picketing police officers, slaying police officers' funerals, or they wanted to, they, they came out and said, we're gonna stop saying that God hates fags, that's a sign they hold up, uh, that we would say, well, that's, that's progress in their growth on how to approach things. And we could say, that's a good thing. So in this light, and in this light alone, I see what the LDS have put on their website as progressive and as an official stance against racism that has long thrived in the Mormon church. So it's a good thing. The trouble is <clears throat> the announcement, like almost everything the institution does from the top, is only partly uh, true, and which for me makes it not true at all. And so before I get ahead of myself, let's read what the announcement says, and I'll stop and talk about it as we go. It begins, in theology and practice, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints embraces the universal human family. Latter-day Saints scripture and teachings affirm that God loves all of his children and makes salvation available to all. God created the many diverse races and ethnicities and esteems them all equally. Hold it. Really? I believe that. The Bible teaches that. But the LDS might believe that God has created the many diverse races and ethnicities and his reasons have been dubious in the past of LDS history, but they have never from the top down taught in their history that he esteems them all equally until now. Never. Um, the word esteem, among other things, not only means to respect and to admire, uh, it means to favor, to prize, to treasure, this has never been the case in Mormonism. And I am talking about from Joseph Smith up until last week when this was posted on their website. How can I say this? The Book of Mormon, which existed before Brigham Young or anyone else was ever LDS, the Book of Mormon written before the establishment of the church, plainly teaches that skin color is indicative of an individual's stance and favor with God. Dark skin, bad. Light skin, good. That's, that's the book. It's still in there today. Still there, okay? So ironically, this article then actually references the Book of Mormon to support this claim, saying, as the Book of Mormon puts it, all are alike unto God. That's what, that, that's what they quote. Uh, my goodness, this is a really unfair selection from their Book of Mormon. They could use other uh, selections that would have just uh, proven them to be deceptive. The article goes on. The structure and organization of the church encourage racial integration. Latter-day Saints attend church services according to the geographical boundaries of their local ward or congregation. By definition, this means that the racial, economic, and demographic composition of Mormon congregations generally mirrors that of wider local community. The church lay ministry also tends to facilitate integration. A black bishop may preside over a mostly white congregation. A Hispanic woman may be paired with an Asian woman to visit the homes of a racially diverse membership. Church members of different races and ethnicities regularly minister in one another's homes and serve alongside one another as teachers as youth leaders, and in a myriad of other assignments in their local congregations. Such practices make the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints a thoroughly integrated faith. 
Okay, now, like all things, the words are, sound really good. They sound really true, uh, you know, really nice and beautiful. But the line, the last line, such practices make the LDS, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, a thoroughly integrated faith is utterly misleading. How could it be a thoroughly integrated faith when their own Book of Mormon still contains passages that talk about skin color being indicative of a people's righteousness? How could it possibly be? The article continues, despite this modern reality of, of them being a truly integrated faith, for much of its history, from the mid-1800s until 1978, the church did not ordain black African descent to its priesthood or allow black men or women to participate in the temple endowment or sealing ordinances. Do you know what that means? That means from the mid-1800s until 1978, black men and women and their families, according to LDS beliefs, could not go to where God lives. That's what it means. Forget everything else about what they say, couldn't receive the, the endowment or see it. It means they go to a lower kingdom. That's what it means, okay? Or they don't get to, they don't get to carry on uh, and have worlds of their own as couples and families. That's what it means. Thanks for admitting the obvious facts on that one. Continues, the church was established in 1830 during an era of great racial division in the United States. At the time, many people of African descent lived in slavery and racial distinctions and prejudice were just not just common, but customary among white Americans. So here we come with rationalization. I'm gonna tell you something right now. They, that, this is their forte. They rationalize what they do to kind of soften the blow of some of the, they're gonna give us some good facts, but they're constantly rationalizing and say, well, it was done. I'm gonna tell you right now, God-believing, Bible-believing people, if they truly had the love of God, I don't care if it was in 300 AD, 580, 1500, 1618, Nine, uh, 2010, it doesn't matter. Bible-believing people have the love of God in their heart, and they know that God is the creator of all races and diversities, and there is no distinction between male and female, black and white, or anything else. God-fearing people, people who believe the Bible, have always believed that. So don't go and say, well, look at the United States. Yeah, the United States sucked in that area, but does that mean the true church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints can follow along? If you're the true church, you of all people would have said no to such things, not yes. Do you see how, what liars you are? Those realities, they say, listen, though unfamiliar and disturbing today, oh my goodness, influenced all aspects of people's lives, including their religion. I gotta almost stop because I freaking hate corporate rhetoric like this. Though unfamiliar today, I, in my opinion, the greatest xenophobes in the world, the greatest racists in the world are still sitting up there at North Temple. Those, those, those 12 apostles and those, they're old school. They cut their teeth on it. This is all just political stuff to sound right to get a Mormon in office in a few years. They're constantly trying to do that. But bottom line, those guys, they cut their teeth on these doctrines. They know them, they lived them, and now they're kind of having to say, well, what can we do? It's not true. So when they write, though unfamiliar and disturbing today, you just bring a black man to go and take Thomas Monson's daughter out on a date, and you're gonna see how uh, disturbing it is to them or, or unfamiliar. Oh, it's unbelievable. Look at some black people are prejudiced. Some white people are, are prejudiced. The Book of Mormon continues to be prejudiced. The Pearl of Great Price, for that matter, unfamiliar today. It's unreal. The next paragraph, the Mormon hierarchy applies one of their favorite tricks, lumping Christian church practices into their own failures, saying many Christian churches of that era, for instance, were segregated along racial lines. Oh, so two wrongs makes a right. I mean, it's unbelievable. Just because they're idiot Christians, truth is not established by 
Christian people or by churches and pastors who may do stupid things over the course of history. Truth is established by what the Bible says. And there were plenty of Christian churches of that era who understood what the Bible said and had nothing to do with this Americana garbage you're trying to pass off as what influenced everybody. Okay. The article repeats a line it loves to repeat then. It says, from the beginnings of the church, people of every race and ethnicity could be baptized. Whoop-de-doo. It's like saying, you can come to the party, but you don't get to eat at the, at the big people's table. It's like, when I go, it's like when I go to my sister's house for Thanksgiving because we're not Mormon anymore. We always sit at the kids' table. We don't get to sit at the big people's table. You know, and that's what you're like. From the beginnings, people of every race and ethnicity could be baptized. So you join the church, you're a black couple, you join the church, you get to sit in there and hear all the talks about going to the temple, but you don't get to go. Oh, what does it mean you got to be baptized? Toward the end of his life, founder Joseph Smith openly opposed slavery. There has never been a church-wide policy of segregated congregation, church-wide. Notice the language. During the first two decades of the church's existence, a few black men were ordained to the priesthood. They love this one too. This is before Joseph Smith allowed stuff to creep in. Uh, one of these men, Elijah Abel, he is the poster child for black men who got the priesthood in the earliest days of the church, also participated in temple ceremonies in Kirtland, Ohio. And the, the Kirtland, Ohio temple ceremony bears nothing in resemblance to what the temple ceremony in Nauvoo and thereafter resemble, and was later baptized as proxy for deceased relatives in Nauvoo, Illinois. There is no evidence that any black men were denied the priesthood during Joseph Smith's lifetime. That line alone is laughable. I mean, if you, there's no evidence that any black men were denied the priesthood during Joseph Smith's lifetime. Well, how many of them even tried? It's just a stupid line that they, they, they just spin. Translation, this is the, now we're getting to the real thing. Joseph Smith, good guy. Joseph Smith, founder of most of the doctrinal tenets of our faith. Joseph Smith ordained Elijah Abel to priesthood. Joseph Smith had the truth and light, Okay. Let's read on. In 1852, President Brigham Young publicly announced that men of black African descent could no longer be ordained to the priesthood. No longer. There was two men's men ordained from 1830. So in 22 years, two black men were ordained, and they say no longer, could no longer be ordained. Acting like the church was full of black men carrying the, the Mormon priesthood, going to the temple. President Brigham Young publicly announced that men of African descent could no longer be ordained to the priesthood, though thereafter blacks continued to join the church through baptism and receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. I'll tell you something right now. Black people don't need your gift of the Holy Ghost. They got it, all right? Following the death of Brigham Young, subsequent church presidents restricted blacks from receiving the temple endowment or being married in the temple. Okay, stop again. This is really important. This is one of the monumental parts. Mormonism has always taught their prophets when they are in the office of being a prophet are essentially infallible. They'll argue with that, but essentially when a prophet speaks, the thinking has been done. God would never let one of the LDS prophets lead the people astray, never. And this has been the way they have kept people in tow. We can rely on our prophet to never lead us astray. But here in what makes this article so bloody significant, I mean, really, really important is that modern LDS leaders are putting the blame of the LDS priesthood ban on Brigham Young and on subsequent church presidents who followed thereafter. Let me read on what they say again. You ready? In 1852, President Brigham Young publicly announced that men of black African descent could no longer be ordained to the priesthood, though thereafter blacks continued to join the church through baptism and receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost. Following the death of Brigham Young, subsequent church presidents restricted blacks from receiving the temple endowment or being married in the temple, end quote. Notice that they do not call uh, Brigham Young or the subsequent church presidents, the prophet Brigham Young, or subsequent church prophets. They purposely call them presidents. I suppose they're trying to get members of the church to believe that acting as a president of the church is very different than acting as a prophet. So let me summarize here a few points that so far uh, we're dealing with. Are you ready? 
a church that claims to be God's only true church on the face of the earth because it has his priesthood, a church that claims its leaders can never lead people astray, a church whose prophets have perpetuated for 128 years, 128 years, the absolute non-biblical, non-Christian act of racial discrimination against black people from keeping their priesthood from them, and finally, a church that now retroactively places the blame of their highest leaders saying the most ridiculous things about skin tone, on, uh, that it's on culture, that the leaders fell prey to culture, even though they're prophets and apostles who are supposed to have God's ear, kept the ban alive while most non-religious thinking people turned from it even some decades ago. Uh, Abraham Lincoln, you gotta read what he said to Frederick Douglass. At, at, at the, Frederick Douglass was the first black man, it was 1860, to visit the White House at a White House dinner. And in front of everybody, Abraham Lincoln said, ah, oh, Frederick Douglass, my good friend. And he said, did you hear the speech? And Frederick Douglass said something about, yeah, I liked it. And, and Abraham Lincoln responded in front of everybody there, that opinion means more to me than anybody else's. Abraham Lincoln, not a Mormon prophet, not carrying the Mormon priesthood, was enlightened all the way back then, but Brigham Young and every LDS prophet thereafter for 128 years, all the way, I mean, the Stanford University, everybody there was enlightened in the 60s. All these people were enlightened about it going way back, but Mormonism, the true church with true prophets, doesn't get the clue until 1978. Then they include a paragraph we can appreciate, we can applaud, and one that by in, in all of itself is honest. It says, over time, church leaders and members advanced many theories to explain the priesthood and temple restrictions. None of these explanations is accepted today as official doctrine of the church, end quote. For them to say church leaders and members advanced many theories to explain the priesthood and temple restrictions, that's good but they could have been a little bit more forthright and repentant, however, in saying maybe something like, over time, church prophets and apostles like Mark E. Peterson, Bruce McConkie, John Taylor, David O. McKay, Joseph Fielding Smith, LeGram Richards, and N. Elvin Tanner have advanced ideas that have been taken as doctrine by our members. None of these are accepted today as official doctrine of the church. The former prophets and apostles were wrong, end quote. But you won't hear them say that. What have those former prophets and apostles actually said that I, as a member of the LDS church and millions and millions of people who were members with me heard and cut our teeth on, believing that they were truly our doctrine and that they truly represented how God saw the races on this earth? Well, let's take a look. We're gonna wrap it up with this. There's a few of them. Ready? Brigham Young said, when all the other children of Adam have had the privilege of receiving the priesthood and of coming into the kingdom of God and of being redeemed from the four corners of the earth and have received their resurrection from the dead, then it will be time enough to remove the curse from Cain and his posterity. That's black people. He says, Cain slew his brother and the Lord put a mark upon him, which is a flat nose and black skin. Brigham Young, prophet of God. He said, after the flood, we are told that the curse that had been pronounced upon Cain was continued through Ham's life. This is John Taylor. As he had married a wife of that seed. And why did it pass through the flood? Because it was necessary that the devil should have a representation upon the earth as well as God. John Taylor. This was not renounced till 1978 as being wrong. And it wasn't even renounced as being wrong then. It's still not being renounced as being wrong. Well, I guess it is. But still, listen to this. This is uh, Apostle George F. Richards. The Negro is an unfortunate man. He has been given a black skin. I envy the black skin. I work hard in the sun to get black skin. But, he, but that is as nothing compared with the greater handicap that he is not permitted to receive the priesthood and the ordinances of the temple necessary to prepare men and women to enter into and enjoy a fullness of glory in the celestial kingdom. That's from LDS apostle George uh, F. Richards. Joseph Fielding Smith, not only was Cain called to suffer, but because of his wickedness, he became the father of an inferior race. 
This is LDS prophet Joseph Fielding Smith. A curse was placed upon him, and that curse has been continued through his lineage and must do so while time endures. They must have been made to feel their inferiority and have been separated from the rest of mankind from the beginning. Yeah, there's a lot of Christian love in there, isn't there? You know, remember, their prophets and apostles taught this, who never lead the people astray. And today they're saying they were wrong. It is true that the Negro race is barred from holding the priesthood, and this has always been the case. The prophet Joseph Smith taught this doctrine, and it was made known to him, although we know of no such statement in any Revelation doctrine covenants, Book of Mormon, or Pearl of Great Price. The LDS prophet said Joseph Smith taught it. Today, last week, the LDS leader said Joseph Smith never taught it. We have a disagreement between the prophets. One said he did, who lived far closer in age to Joseph Smith than these guys do, but these guys are going back and saying, no, Joseph never did that. He did. There were no neutrals in the war of heaven. All took sides, either with Christ or with Satan. Every man had his agency there, and men received their rewards here based on their actions there. Just as they will receive rewards hereafter for deeds done in the body, the Negro evidently is receiving the reward he merits. Finally, Joseph Fielding Smith, of Joseph Fielding Smith, there is a reason why one, black, one man is born black and with other disadvantages while another is born white with great advantages. The reason is that we once had an estate before we came here and were obedient more or less to the laws that were given to us there. Those who were faithful in all things there received greater blessings here, and those who were not faithful received less. These guys, this is from a prophet, Joseph Fielding Smith. They, they, they say these prophets made mistakes. But when, when I was alive and Joseph Fielding Smith was saying this stuff, they couldn't have made a mistake. Just like Thomas Monson, is he making mistakes now saying that you can't have more than one piercing? Is he making mistakes now? Did they make mistakes when they said no R-rated movies? Are they making mistakes now when they say women can't hold their priesthood? How many mistakes are they making now? And 100 years from now, are they going to go back and say, those guys were totally crazy. He was just making mistakes. A couple more. Negroes in this life are denied the priesthood. Under no circumstances can they hold this delegation of authority from the Almighty. The gospel message of salvation is not carried affirmatively to them. The gospel message of salvation is not carried affirmatively to them. Negroes are not equal with other races where the receipt of certain spiritual blessings are concerned. Mark E. Peterson, he's the coup de grace almost. When he told Enoch not to preach the gospel to the descendants of Cain who were black, the Lord engaged in segregation. So Marky e. Peterson, who was alive and apostle when I was a kid, he's saying the Lord is a segregationalist, all right? Uh, is there a reason why, this is, why then, is there reason then why the type of birth we receive in this life is not a reflection of our worthiness or lack of in a preexistent life? Can we account in any other way for the birth of some children of God in darkest Africa or in flood-ridden China or amongst the starving hordes of India while some of the rest of us are born in the United States? We cannot escape the conclusion that because of performance in our pre-existence, some of us are born as Chinese, some as Japanese, some as Latter-day Saints. Oh my gosh, this guy's unbelievable. There are rewards and punishments fully in harmony with his established policy in dealing with sinners and saints, rewarding all according to their deeds. Last quote of the night. This is an Eldon Tanner. The church has no intention of changing its doctrine on the Negro. Throughout the history of the original Christian church, the Negro never held the priesthood. There's really nothing we can do to change this. It's the law of God. <laughs> Unbelievable. You know what this is all about? Put on your thinking caps, LDS. We're watching this today and in years to come. It's about a religion full of men in leadership who have believed they have the right to step outside of what this book teaches and they have the right to come up with all kinds of stuff and give explanations and doctrines and teachings and myths and everything else. And then they think they have the right to get other people to follow them. 
This practice was started by Joseph Smith, and it continues today. The LDS Church has not come clean, and to quote a friend of mine, they can't make up for years of doctrinal myths with a press release. Let's open up the phones, 801-590-8413, 801-590-8413. We have a special offer. If you want this offer applicable for the holiday, Christmas, I said it, uh, order by Friday, order by Friday. It's on the website, a little Christmas decoration. You can click on it and you can get the deal and the deal is Four CDs for a very reasonable price. I think it's like 60, 60 songs of scripture put to music. Take a look. For Christ is the end of the law for Okay, so those are all available on the website. Go to them, $29.99. Order by Friday, you'll get them for Christmas. And order after that, it's a crapshoot. Okay, so uh, we have calls on one and two. Our screen is out telling me who they are, so we're just gonna guess. Line one, who are you? Alisa. What's up? Hi, <laughs> you sent me a Bible, and it's awesome. I gave you a what? You oh, it's awesome. Thank Derek and Danita. They send those out. Oh, you know what? I think this ministry is great because, um, first of all, I never really understood anything about grace because I grew up as a Mormon. And then after I kind of got out of it when I was like, you know, got out of the house, I, I just kind of thought like everybody else. Like, it was just silly. And like, Christians were kind of dumb. <laughs> They are. I, I don't know. I'm like, now that I'm starting to really get it, it's just really awesome. Oh, praise God. So are you yeah. reading it? Are you reading it? Yeah, I'm like reading John. It's like, whoa, this stuff is pretty awesome. Awesome. Whoa, <laughs> and awesome. Alicia, thank you for calling. We, It's our pleasure. Yeah. Yeah, your book uh, helped out. That's why I like your ministry, because... I was like, I had to unlearn what I had been taught by reading your book, and when, when now I was able to read the Bible, I was like, oh, okay, I can just read it for what it is, instead of all this stupid Joseph Smith crap in my head, you know? Read it for what it is, my sister. Yeah. Right. It's pretty cool. All right. Well, thank you for calling, Alicia. Yeah, thank you. Okay, we'll and talk that, to you later. And that, all right, have a good one. Bye. Bye-bye. Okay, and we're going to Charles in Phoenix on line two. Charles, you're on Heart of the Matter. Sorry? You're on the air. Hi, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Good. Listen, I had a question about um, where you might find a demographic that exists now of the uh, minorities that are involved with the church. Is that available? I mean, 
I've always mm. been curious. I, I've always thought it was a racist organization, and I would like to see what the, the demographics are today. Yeah. Well, uh, I'll tell you this. I'm trying to think of the name. Barnum, and then there's, if you go online and you, church, and you research, oh, uh, it's, it's uh, they do all the demographics for all religions. It's a fantastic website, and they'll give you the breakdown, like, back you know, maybe a few years ago of what it was, at least maybe in, in 2009 or something like that. But they give you the, the geographic, they give you the socioeconomic, they give you the psychographics, and they'll give you the racial distribution of, of people in all churches. But I can't remember the name of the site. I know Barna, oh, thank you. Barna does one. What's that? I said, thank you. <laughs> you yeah, got me all I know, I know. I wish I had it, but if you do, if you just put in church statistics nationwide or world, world, worldwide, it'll come up. I will tell you this, when it comes to uh, uh, Hispanics, Latin Americans, the church is booming. Uh, it's booming because they didn't have any type of racial ban on them. Uh, but, uh, so, but in terms of uh, African Americans, I think you're talking uh, very, very slim relative to the 15 million they have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, I, I really uh, enjoy your, your ministry. You've done a great job, and uh, I hope it continues. Thanks, Charles. Thanks for watching. God bless you. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. We're going to Vic on line three. Vic, you're on Heart of the Matter from Nashville. Hey, Sean. What's going on, man? Not much. Our, our, uh, our graphic people say you're from Nazville. Nazville, Nazville. yeah. Nazville. Like Nazarene. <laughs> yeah, Nazarene from Nazville. What's up? Hey, um, I was just thinking, you know, really it shouldn't be called Mormons. It should be called Moronans because the angel of light founded the church, Moroni. I know. That's a good, that's a good. The Mormon uh, name was uh, signed as a pejorative term back in the day. Uh, kind of like Christians was assigned as a pejorative term back in the day, and it stuck uh, yeah. b- because of the name of the Book of Mormon. Yeah, so really, I mean, when you think about it, if an angel of light founded the institution that exists today, it really wasn't uh, a man involved that much uh, in its origins. I mean, later on, you know, Joseph took the credit from yeah. all the bull that he was fed by the angel. Yeah, that's a good point. And they have put the angel on top of most of their temples. It's a good yeah. point. So subtly, it's subtle Satan worship. It subtly is. Yeah. All right. Well, keep doing what you're doing, man. You've really changed my life. In the last year, I've learned and grown so much. And I'm going over your shows right now again for the second time. I'm on like 150. <laughs> yeah, you are a glutton for punishment. <laughs> it's great to see the evolution. Hey, thanks so much. All right. Thank you. Okay. Man. Talk to you later. Bye. I'm gonna give a I'm gonna give an attempt to put scripture to song. Then shall the children of Jude. I just thought I'd try it. it <laughs> you fly. I did that for my friend Jeff because he has a similar personality. Thank you for that. Uh, this is Justin Snyder writes. We're gonna get to Jordan in just a minute. Your ministry is false. When are you gonna realize that? Now. I, I quit. You're right, Justin. I quit. That's it. We're done. <laughs> to heck with it. No more. Oh, okay, we'll go back. <laughs> How is the ministry false? We preach Jesus as the way, truth, and life. That's it. That's it. If you came and heard, I mean, we teach the Bible, and there's a lot in it. But in the end, we teach just Jesus. You know, if that's a false ministry, uh, Justin, I don't know what to tell you. Let's go to Jordan in Norfolk, Virginia. Jordan, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, Sean, dude. I, I know I keep calling you, man. Um, but I, just, I, I wanted to uh, make a comment or two and then ask you a question. Yeah. So, first off, I really enjoy that music, and I might have to pick up the CDs. Uh, Second, your insights to the uh, John 5 about the witnesses, that was really, really cool. Oh, praise Uh, God. I'm going to have to look more into that. Now, my question is about the Mormon, the the prophets, seers, and revelators, right? They claim to have 
a, an ongoing revelation. But from what I've seen since the time of Brigham Young, no one's really tried anything new. Brigham Young tried the Adam-God thing, which he said was from Joseph, and it was just, he tried it all his life, and it was sternly rejected. Yep. Um, so my, my question is, other than saying, okay, we're going to stop polygamy, but still do it spiritually behind closed doors, and we're going to allow blacks into the priesthood, but never change what we actually believe about them, um, what, have there really been any updates or new revelations? Uh, that have been recorded as canon, official canon, added to the Doctrine and Covenants, no. But then there's always a caveat with the LDS. They'll say that every ensign article written by a prophet or apostle is, could also be considered scripture. It goes so back and forth. It's so slippery. Ezra Taft Benson, he gave a bunch of rules about what scripture is. And then now they say, no, it's really tough. But what you're saying is the only thing they've come up with in terms of revelation is uh, period times for missions, can't see R-rated movies, uh, no more than, no tattoos, and no more than one piercing in each ear. I don't think, wow. they, I don't think, and that, those, are the, those are the revelations, but Gordon B. Hinckley said, we don't need much more revelation. Huh. I don't but know. It, it sounds like they're just doing a bunch of uh, PC revelation and a lot of uh, uh, things that you have to do for your salvation revelation. Yeah. Uh, so that doesn't sound very encouraging to me. I'm glad I'm not a Mormon. Uh, <laughs> it, it's not real encouraging, is it? No. But, uh, you know, that, that letter that you talked about, this is big news, but it's not because it actually is anything meaningful, no. not even in the slightest. It's big news because for those of us that see what they really are, it's just more and more saving space. Yeah. I think, uh, Jordan, it was, I think it was one of their biggest errors in, in this generation to see. I think it was a huge error to, uh, to do the way they did it. But that's, yeah. you know, they're smart. They got a lot of lawyers. They're very intelligent men and women. I could be wrong, but I think it was an error. Yeah, and that, you know, that, uh, I saw something that you had done, I don't know when it was, it was about this white horse prophecy, and yeah. how they believe that there's going to come like a, a savior when the Constitution's hanging by a thread and blah, blah, blah. I, I think you're right. You mentioned earlier that they are trying, they're priming the public for another Mormon presidential candidate. Absolutely. Without question, mark my words, we said this in, in 2007, we said it in 2011, it came true both times with Romney, and right now we're starting to see Romney poke his head up again. They are vying, they are trying to get a Mormon in office. Yep. So we'll see what happens, we'll see if the evangelicals sell their souls again. Yeah, but you know what, dude? I the uh, the evangelicals can be just as bad. They'll sell their souls to get a Christian, a so-called Christian, in office, no matter, you know, no matter what. I mean, they almost believe the white horse prophecy as well. I know the more version. You're exactly right. I agree with you completely, Jordan. Hey, man, thanks for watching. Thanks for calling. Thank you, Sean. God bless you. You too. Talk to you later. Jonathan writes, come back to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. There is room for you at the table. <laughs> what does that mean? I, I don't hate when they talk like that. There's that sing-song, mesmerizing talk. You know, the Lord, he loves you. I walked outside. The day was warm. Birds were singing. Flowers were growing in the yard. <laughs> it's, it's, it's so come back to the church there is room for you at the table well there better be if I come back Luke writes I'm really on one I think I've had far too much caffeine um, hey I'm young dumb Christian aspiring to be a strong defender of the faith I debate Mormons regularly and currently through Facebook and other means uh, my Mormon the Mormons in my life a while ago was wondering what books I can use uh, you know there's a number of good books anything by D. Michael uh, Quinn um, are good. Origins of Power, Hierarchy of Power, um, 
uh, Grant Palmer's Insider View of Mormon Origins. It's really good because he really slays the first vision and the priesthood thing. He, he drop kicks it right out of the park. Uh, Zen, he writes, Exiles in the Land of Liberty. That book in and of itself will shock you relative to the Book of Mormon. And of course, there's, there's a whole, you can go to utlm.org, Sandra Tanner, been doing this for 40 years, and they have a lot of references there of what you can look for relative to the Mormon Christian debate. Al writes, greeting Sean, you should always refer back to Jeremiah chapter 10 before you slip back to the Christian Christmas spirit and heathen destruction. You know, I don't know what Jeremiah chapter 10 says. I'll have to ask Mary because she is becoming the Old Testament guru in our family and find out, but I don't know what that means, Al. Um, just get back to this one. We get a lot of, last week, did I cover something about Mormonism and the cross? This is a question. We get a lot of questions about Mormonism and the cross. Why don't they use it in their buildings? Uh, they're not alone. For instance, Calvary Chapels, where I train, they don't use the cross in their buildings. They use a dove. Uh, coming down from heaven. Uh, in Utah, what happened was the LDS church had no problem with the cross when they first got here. It was when the Catholics moved in and the Catholics' emphasis on the crucifix, cross has no Jesus on it, crucifix has a Jesus stuck to it. And when the Mormons saw the Catholics and their emphasis on the crucifix, it became more culturally applicable for them not to use uh, the cross. But nevertheless, uh, today, there is absolutely no reverence, it seems like, for the cross. But that's almost not fair because they will sing upon the cross at Calvary. They do recognize the cross as a place of torment for, for Jesus. Uh, and so we have to give them that. The problem is, is they take away from that by then emphasizing that Jesus' spiritual suffering was in the garden. And that's completely unfair. Uh, Matthew 10, 38, Luke 9, 23, 1 Corinthians 1, 17, Galatians 5, 17, uh, Galatians 6, 12, and 14, Ephesians 2, 16, Philippians 3, 18, and Hebrews 12, 12, all talk about the metonymical import of the cross, meaning that was the place where uh, humankind was reconciled to holy God. And the cross has such an import in the lives of people, not because it was a place of torture that we relish torture, but because it was the place where God himself gave his life. He hung upon that, that place willingly. He gave his life for us. And it is by the action on the cross. And all of those references I just gave you are about on the cross, the shame of the cross, picking up your cross. And there is absolutely no connection to the garden. Again, that's a twistianity that Mormonism uses to twist, twist, twist Christian truths and make it their own. And so they said, look at every, all the Christians are, are loving the cross. And so uh, we're gonna say, no, we're gonna give you the steeple. And uh, <laughs> they certainly do give you the, <laughs> the steeple. Okay. And uh, thank you, Dave, for heightening my, <laughs> my already unprofessional approach to things. And I think with that, we're out of time. Listen, I want to uh, wrap this up by telling you uh, a relationship, coming to know the Lord is, is, is just a matter of recognizing who he is and recognizing who you are. Look at who you are in, in, the, in, the, in your mind, in your heart. And like Martin Luther said, if you think you're perfect, uh, then don't look at yourself when you're with your friends and having fun. Look at yourself when someone slights you. That's how you know what you're about, when someone slights you. And, and so look at your heart when you're offended. Look at your heart when someone abuses you and mistreats you and lies about you, takes advantage of you. Look at the heart that's in you there because that heart is not in God. That heart is not there. He loves us and we are the worst in that way. So you can come to him and his son will redeem you. You come and you say, God, I've, you know, I've been a sinner. I, I've sinned. I don't know you. Change me. I'm asking you to change me. Pray to him. Seek, seek him and, and you will be found. And so give it up to him. Let him work in your life. They have sinners' prayers and everything else. Open up the Bible. Go to the book of John. Start reading. Just pray. Say, I don't know. Are you there? He'll touch you. He'll reach you. Join us next week here on Heart of the Matter as we continue on talking about 
ultimate reconciliation. We'll see you next week. Encore, people!